Okay, so we are now in the chapter We Agnostics, which is step two. And just to point out, we took four chapters to do step one. It's only a conclusion, but literally half the instructions in the big book is on step one. That's how, that's how important it is. So <coughs> we agnostics, the term agnostics actually comes from a Greek word. Gnostic is knowledge and ag is without. So it's those without knowledge. I personally didn't think step two was relevant to me because I came from 12 years of Catholic school. I believed in God. There's no reason for me to do this step. I think sometimes religious people need it more than anybody because it's our ideas about God that's killing us. So let me tell you my two um, old ideas about step two. I need to define, understand, and believe in God before I move to step three. And two, I get conscious contact with God in step two. So let's look at that as we study the chapter. So step two does not teach us about God or define God. What step two does, it's a conclusion, do we need a power? Do I need a power? So in the first paragraph, which Bill often does this, he kind of summarizes the prior chapters as we're entering in an, into a new chapter. <coughs> in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We've hoped we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Have we done that? Have we made a distinction between the 10% and the 90% too? So if, when you honestly want to, you cannot quit entirely, so that's the mental twist, I can't stay stopped. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, which is the mental twist. So I know in AA, I think they have 40 questions of are you an alcoholic. In OA, we have 15 questions. The big book just has two questions. A lot simpler. Um, it says you're probably alcoholic. Now this is Kim interceding. If you have both, you're a compulsive overeater. It's so funny how we will fight to say I'm not a compulsive overeater, and then when we were given evidence that maybe we're not a compulsive overeater, we'll fight that we are. <laughs> Um, so if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So it's kind of like a bummer that it's only a spiritual experience that'll work, and it's kind of hopeful that it will conquer it. And it talks here to be doomed to an alcoholic death or live in a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. So there's a saying I like, it's not big book, but it says we often choose a problem that is familiar rather than a solution that isn't. I am a really good compulsive overeater. I'm really comfortable with that. So often I would go back to the food because I, I would choose the misery I knew than the unknown. I remember watching TV shows where little kids were taken away from abusive parents and they were screaming for their parents. Why? Because they know what's going to happen in that house. They don't know who the stranger is and where they're taking them to. So the fear of where they're going overseeds the anguish and the terror that's going on in their own house. I kind of feel it's the same way with our disease. Um, at the bottom of that page, if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral, we could wish to be philosophically comforted, in fact we could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources as marshaled by the will were not sufficient. They failed us utterly. <coughs> I had a friend that said you could always tell how sick she was by how many self-help books she had on her, on her nightstand. And I have to tell you, I heard this one time too, it blew my, you know, just struck me. If you want to go to a Barnes & Noble, which I don't know if anyone even left anymore, um, and you want to find the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you would go to the self-help section. And that is the furthest from the truth. That the 12 steps are a self-abandonment self -abandonment group, not a self-help group. We're gonna, it's gonna delusion smash that we can do this on our own. We need a power greater than ourselves. So everything, what has convinced me again, is not getting between me and my sponsee's step one experience. I have to know that, that everything I've done was insufficient, and I have to understand that it fails me utterly. So that first paragraph on page 45, it tells me what my real problem is. <coughs> lack of power, that was my dilemma. See, I thought it was lack of intellect, lack of knowledge, lack of money, lack of a boyfriend. 
and my problem is lack of power is that is my dilemma and if I get access to power then there is no dilemma we had to find a power by which we could live and <coughs> I always was looking for a power by which I could eat once again thinking that the whole thing is about powerless over the food <coughs> if I kind of find a power by which I can live comfortably then I don't need to seek ease and comfort in the food but where and we where and how are we oh it was our and the, and the, the uh, sentence obviously and I love that obviously is is all one sentence just one word and that's to me is also why it's so important to do this chapter per chapter because if you bring someone who's not read the chapters beforehand and ask them to read this, it's not going to be obvious to them. They're going to give you all the excuses that we had, all these prejudices. It's obvious now because I have been destroyed by the food and understand what I suffer from. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. <coughs> so once again, it's just slamming home the idea that the directions of the steps is in this book. I don't need to figure it out. So let's go to um, the last line on page 47. Besides the seeming inability to accept much on faith, we often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. Many of us have been so touchy that even a casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. Once again, using that other book, Webster's, <coughs> I looked up the word handicapped, a condition that markedly restricts one's ability to function. And man, did that fit my disease. So what is handicapping me? My obstinacy, my, my arrogance, my I know. There's, um, once again, one of my favorite AA speakers is Sandy B. And I found out, I used to quote him all the time in this, and I found that it's actually a Mark Twain quote, but I'm going to still give it to Sandy B. It's not what I don't know that will kill me, but what I know for sure that isn't true that will kill me. It's not what I don't know that will kill me. It's what I know for sure that isn't true that will kill me. Which is why this whole chapter is about opening my mind, questioning my old ideas. <coughs> That's one of the reasons I started with these weekends, starting out with my two old ideas. Because those old ideas shut me down to listening to what the book was actually telling me. And I love the bristle with antagonism. I think, like I'm a porcupine, as soon as someone says something I don't agree with, my, my bristles go up. You know, my sensitiveness. I think everything is about me. I was talking to my mom yesterday, and um, one of my neighbors is, is giving me a hard time about my dogs barking. And uh, I was doing some 10 and 11 work on it. And I said, Mom, you know, I, my, I realize it's not him. I think he's an ass. but. It's not him. I'm afraid he's talking behind my back and talking to my neighbors who I don't talk to myself, so I don't know why I care what they think. But, um, <laughs> but I said to myself, during 10-11, I thought to myself, I think he's only complaining about my dogs. There's dogs all over my neighborhood. For all I know, he's going to everybody's house and knocking on the door and telling their dogs to shut up. But I always think everything is about me. I'm so sensitive. It's all about me. And then unreasoning prejudice. So... That, I was even prejudiced about the word prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you, the origin again, prejudice is, pre, ju, Judas is to judge and pre is a prejudgment. So what prejudgments do I come into this with? I, in my naivete, thought, well, I don't have a problem with gay people or black people or people who are not my religion. I'm not prejudiced. But what are those prejudices that I'm putting out on other people? What are my prejudices about the 12-step program? what it means to be a good OA. You know, what are my prejudices? Uh, I'm trying to think of one. Because I'm always confronting and I'm just laughing at myself and I can't even think of one right now. But I just think the world is a certain way and then I look at it and I'm like, oh. In fact, there's a girl, you know, there's a girl in, my, in my office who's African-American and I often go up to her and say, can I ask you a stupid white girl question? Because I don't know what it was like to grow up African-American. I so remember how we had a really, 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 really cold um, uh, d uh, January one time. And I mean, you could not have any of your face uncovered. You had to, everything had to be covered because it was like, it was just so freaking cold. And I was saying, I said, you know, and I was saying that to her. And she's like, well, I, my son can't do that. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, she goes my son's an African-American boy. He can't cover his face like that. He has the cops will stop him. And I'm like, what? Like, I, I don't think of stuff like that because that's not my experience. So I, I try to often say, is this true? 
One of, on my um, computer screen, I have the word perhaps. Because that's what paused me. Perhaps this isn't true. Perhaps. It, it's that pause in my life. Because I don't know what it's like, you know, even, even in a way, like, like the, I mean, I've been three ends, but like when someone who's obese poo-poos on someone who's anorexic because they don't think they suffer like them, you don't know what that person with anorexia went through, and yet we're judging them. You know, one of the gifts, and I don't, I don't like to get, I'm, very, I'm a political junkie, but one of the gifts in the 2016 election was it didn't go my way, but because of sponsoring across the country, I found a lot of people that were excited how 2016 turned out. And what I found was we all are the same thing. We're all scared and we want our families to be safe. And the way I thought that's going to happen is different than how other people thought that was going to happen. And I was confronted, again, with my own arrogance. Because personally, I hope this isn't offending anybody, but I'm a bit, I loved Obama. And when people were upset with Obama, I'm like, oh, fucking get over it. He's president. I love the guy. Well, I have my friends who are saying, Trump's president. Get over it. And my, I didn't realize the fear I'm feeling with this president is the same fear they felt with the president that I loved, and I'm judging it. And none of us are talking to each other in the political environment, or in our families, or in Overeaters Anonymous, because I'm a big book person, and I'm a 12-step person, and the way I do the fourth step is, is the right way, and the way you do the fourth step is the wrong way. So we're all constantly prejudging. Perhaps I am wrong. Perhaps there is another way of looking at it. And step two is that perhaps that gets me there. It doesn't mean I don't advocate for what I believe in. I'm sharing strongly what the big book did for me. I'm very politically active in the, in the things that I believe in. But I don't need to make other people wrong. And my beliefs aren't diminished by people who believe differently than me. Boy, was that a tangent. Okay. Sorry about that. Whew. So why, why, why am I opening this up? It says, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon become as open-minded on spiritual matters as we tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was the great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. So this is where that question came in, is that I have to recognize I can't convince anyone of step one. It's their own experience that's going to convince them of step one. So I don't want to get in the way of that. I'll tell you one of my shortcomings. I have a really hard time sponsoring young girls in college. That was when my disease was out of control. I am real clear with my sponsees what's required and what they can do, you know, what, 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 what I require. But when a kid is in college and telling me they have finals, I get like, a, <laughs> I just get all up, I, I let them get away with murder because of, I have this thing about college kids. So there was a girl I was working with and she had finals and she, she binged and I got quiet and asked, can I be useful to this person? And I realized I couldn't. I couldn't. So I told her that I couldn't continue to work with her. I was so upset with myself. And she called me a few months later and she told me, she's like, Kim, I just need you to know. I went on some of the worst binges I ever went on after you let me go. And I got so desperate, I asked someone in my home group to sponsor me. <laughs> and she was, I'm now recovered, and I want to let you know, so in case you have any young girls that you can t throw them my way, I need people to work with. And I was like, thank you, God. If, in my arrogance, if I kept trying to work with her, who knows if she would have kept binging and you know, not, not found this other person who apparently, the way that she taught helped her, or her level of des desperation was there that she was willing to do the work. So it's the food that's going to convince someone, not me. And as far as being open-minded on spiritual matters, in fact, it happened yesterday. Uh, when I was up in my room, my iPad said, update available. I did not go in to see what the update was or what the parameters were. I simply hit yes and let it update my, update my uh, phone. I don't worry about that with technology. You know, if you most, when I think the new iPhones are coming out. I, I saw an announcement last week. Most people will buy the new iPhone and not even ask what the updates are. They just know it's got to be better. Yet when it comes to the spiritual life and the steps, I want to understand everything before I do it. <laughs> so I always use this example with me is a GPS because I have no sense of direction. I'm in. I mean, seriously, when I walk out the door, I don't know whether to, whether to go left or right. Like I just have no sense of direction. <laughs> in a hotel, let alone a road. And uh, so when GPSs came out, I tried it. I felt no need to find out when it says, you know, um, uh, acquiring satellites. I didn't give a crap where the satellites were. You know, I didn't feel a need to see the patent or talk to the engineers. 
It was my powerlessness of my sense of direction that made me submit to this, this computer that talked to me. And every time I got from point A to point B, I, got, I gained more and more confidence in the GPS. Now just to, to take that analogy even further, like I said, I've been recovered for over eight and a half years. The relationship I had at eight, at eight and a half years ago is not sufficient for today. That relationship has had to grow. So I had the GPS that you plugged into the cigarette lighter and the, you know, the little thing was on there and then I got an app on my phone and it's a social media GPS which tells me traffic. So for example I went to this one um, 15 week big book series on Wednesday night in Philadelphia and when I was eating dinner I would turn on my GPS and it would say it will take you 45 minutes to get there. Some days it told me 35, sometimes it told me an hour and 15, depending on the traffic. And that, that let me know when to leave the house. And I don't think in that 15 weeks I went the same way to that location. There's a multiple bridges to Philly. Sometimes I took the Taconi, sometimes I took the Ben Franklin, sometimes I took the Betsy Ross, sometimes I took I-95, sometimes I took State Road. I always got there. So I was allowed that, that upgrade worked. I upgraded my spiritual life. A year ago or something, got a pop-up on my phone. It says, would you like my, the app to connect with your calendar? Sure. I didn't know what that meant. I just hit sure. <laughs> now, what it does is if I have yoga in there on Tuesday nights, it'll pop up on my phone saying, yoga at 7 o'clock. Traffic is light. It'll take approximately 18 minutes. I'm like, holy crap. So now, like, all my appointments, I put the location in, and, and it will tell me what time I, I should be leaving my house. And didn't need to research it, just open to that new experience, be open to this, this spiritual experience. That's what, it's my powerlessness that makes me open, and then I need to ha have that continue to grow. Okay, so let's go to page, <coughs> page 50. That second paragraph. So third, third paragraph. On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. That's what I need. Do I have access to that power? I had a lot of beliefs about God. And most of my beliefs were that he was out to get me and I have to hide from him because otherwise I'm going to hell. But I had beliefs. So what the big difference is access. And I didn't go over it. I'm going to get back to another page. But they talk about this agnostic temperament. And as a recovered woman, I've, I've had another experience with this work. So I take the God out of it. <coughs> Atheistic thinking is self, totally self-will, totally self-sufficiency. Believer is someone who's totally other-dependent or God-dependent, other meaning like a higher self, if you're not believing in a God. And then agnostic temperament means that sometimes I think you know, like, like I can do this myself and sometimes I think God can do it. So what happens is with those temperaments, I can be atheistic, agnostic, and a believer all in a 24-hour period multiple times a day. Like for example, with this thing that happened with my neighbor, I remembered my thought process. Um, he, he knocked on my door like early in the morning because my dogs were out barking. And I, my immediate thought was fear. And then I thought, well, you know, with the Bahamas and that hurricane, I, God doesn't have time to deal with this little neighbor spot. Like, that's my big thing. I think that God handles the big stuff, and I, I have to handle these little things. So that's agnostic temperament, that I have to go back on, on self-sufficiency. So the problem isn't my beliefs in God as much as it, I don't think I have access to that power. And what these, everyone agrees to is access to that power. So for some of us, it's a specific dogma, a specific religion. For some of us, it's principles. You know, um, one of my sponsees who, who passed away recently, <coughs> a couple years ago, um, she was a staunch agnostic, um, grew up Holy Baptist, Holy Roller, and just so hated her, her background. So she was staunchly agnostic. And she named her power Dee Dee, Divine Director. And that's what she said. There was a divine director inside of her that, that taught her how to do it. And I just thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. Um, so that next paragraph, here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed, they flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, which is, <coughs> I kind of think of that step two, to take a certain attitude towards that power, which is step three, the decision, and to do certain simple things, which is four through nine, the inventory process, 
there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking, which is steps 10, 11, and 12. I love when I could kind of take Bill's language and put it into like basically the steps in the sentence or two. In the face of collapse and total despair, in the face of total failure of human resources, so that's step one. They found that new power, peace, and sense of direction flowed into them. So once again, the precursor is that powerlessness which propels us to do the rest of the work. <coughs> that's my personal belief. The, that the depths that I have accepted step one is the depths that I will go to to do the rest of the steps. I will putter out if I don't believe in step one. This happened soon after they met a few simple requirements. The requirements are the steps, right? So this is going to happen afterwards, not just saying, okay, I need a power. Boom, it's going to happen. Once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they make are making heavy going of life. Leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living is so unsatisfactory. <coughs> I love that sentence because if I'm still eating, how can I leave aside this, the drink question? Because I'm still in it. The reason I'm seeing life is so unsatisfactory while not eating is because I stopped eating. So I have to have the food down and even to experience what this book is telling me. Why am I making a heavy going of life? Why is life so darn difficult? Once again, using my ankle injury. So in the fall of 2010, I'm a miserable SOB. You know, my parents are driving me frickin' nuts. I'm finishing up my master's, my master degree. The school's giving me a hard time. My job is just so frickin' annoying. My, my friends were, were ignoring me because I was in grad school for five years in order to like have my company pay for it. I, I graduated with no debt. And people can only ask you to do something so many times before when you say, no, I have to study, no, I have to study, before they stop asking you, you know? And I'm angry at them, and da da and I, and I have this break, and, I, and you know, I'm, I'm homebound for, for 11 weeks. My parents practically moved in with me to take me care of me. I couldn't even put my own underwear on for the first 10 days. I was in so much pain. And then my company, um, through their policy, I was out for 11 weeks, I had full pay for the 11 weeks that I was out. I made more, I, I had more money when I came back than, when, than if I had been working because I wasn't using gas money or anything like that. I, every, all the money I was getting, I was, you know, there was no expenses in the sense that way. Um, my friends were calling me and dropping stuff off if I needed anything. I had, I had a friend that was doing my library runs because I read a lot and they were going back and forth. I would order books on the, online and they would pick them up and take my old books back. And then when I talked to my, my um, my grad school, you know, you walk in graduation. Well, I had six credits left. They allowed me to walk, which I joked, I limped. I limped in graduation down the whole thing, and they let me take my classes in the summer. So here I am. My life hadn't really changed in the sense I still have my parents, I still have my friends, I still have my job. But my experience changed because I had changed. So life has become, is heavy going to life. It often has to do with the way that I approach life more than actually life itself. I mean, I would think this ankle break was the worst thing that happened to me until I realized that's the reason I'm recovered today. I'm the kind of person God can tap on my shoulder and I, he has to bang me over the head with a two by four. Oh, you need my attention. And that's what that, that was. It needed, I, there was, my life needed attention. Okay, so let's go to page 52. How many of you guys know about the bedevilments? Okay, so the bedevilments are, is that second full paragraph on page 52. And I was told to read it in first person and say when abstinent after each of the bedevilments. Because if these bedevilments only are with me when I'm in the food, then once again the logical <coughs> conclusion is get abstinent and the bedevilments will go away. So it says, we had to ask ourselves why, or I had to ask myself why I shouldn't apply to my human problems the same readiness to change my point of view. Was I having trouble with personal relationships when abstinent? Couldn't I control my emotional nature when abstinent? Was I a prey to misery and depression when abstinent? Couldn't I make a living when abstinent? Did I have a feeling of uselessness when abstinent? Was I full of fear when abstinent? Was I unhappy when abstinent? Couldn't I be of real help to other people when abstinent? <coughs> now for me personally, the bedevilments were my consequences of being abstinent. 
If I was in uncontrollable emotional nature, if I ate, it made me numb. That was the best thing about the food is I would feel nothing. So every time I got abstinent, this is what would pop up. So of course I'd have to go back in the food. You know, could it make a living? I remember thinking, well, I always had a job. But I was 27 years old living with my parents because I couldn't afford binge foods and rent. So was I really making a living? You know, was it prey to misery and depression? <coughs> the poor me's, oh my God, it was awful. But once again, I would numb out with the food. So if your experience is that you suffer from these when you're in the food and you don't suffer from these when you're abstinent, then you don't need to do the steps because abstinence will be enough for you. But if you're like the 10% of Dr. Silkworth, then these devilments won't go away until you've done the, undone the step work. And we're still human. It talks about when these things crop up. <coughs> we are not immune to the normal everyday things of life. But they don't go into the extremes that they did when we were in untreated. Now that next paragraph for me personally <coughs> is my step two. So it says, when we saw others solve their problems by the simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. So I was convinced through my step one experiences that my ideas didn't work. I was exposed to people in whom the problem had been solved. I saw that and believed they were once like me. I could see, <coughs> could see they were no longer like me. And they told me this God idea worked for them. So my belief that it worked for them was enough for me to take step two. Once again, my personal experience, I complicated the hell out of step two. <coughs> I used to do things which I was told to do, like, like you know, write a, write a letter of resignation as supreme ruler of the universe, and then write um, help wanted add to God, then write resumes of God applying to you, and decide who to hire. <laughs> Sounds like playing God versus, versus conceding to a power greater than yourself. <coughs> who am I to tell God who he's supposed to be? And at this point, I don't care who he is. I remember one of my AA mentors saying, you know, he was talking about sponsorship. He's like, he's like, it cracks me up how people come up to me and want to interview me to see if I'm good enough to sponsor them. He's like, man, when you were on the streets, if Flacco was selling crack, you'd buy it off of him. Did you ask for his resume? <laughs> and that's the truth. We'll, we'll take anything when we're in the food. I'm buying, you know, 14-day-old Entenmann's because it's cheaper because I need more quantity, so I'm buying cheaper and cheaper food because... <coughs> because I need, to, I need to eat more just to get the same kind of hit. And yet I go through this thing, well, no, I have to see if God is worthy of me believing in him. No. Are you dying? Are you done? And then are you willing to, do you need a power? We'll figure that out later in the steps, what that power looks like. So let's go to page 53. <coughs> that second paragraph. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. So I could argue, definitely before OA, <coughs> that I didn't understand what a self-imposed crisis was because I didn't understand what was going on with me. I could even argue sometimes in OA that I didn't understand what, what I was suffered from, so I, I didn't understand that it was self-imposed. Unfortunately for you all, when you leave here on Sunday, you don't have that argument anymore. You now know what you suffer from. You know it is self-imposed. You know there's a solution called the 12 steps and if you don't do it, you're gonna eat again. It's now self-imposed. So we cannot postpone or evade. I can't be, I quote unquote, can't be in denial anymore. <coughs> we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? So once again, let's strip the word God out of it. Fearlessly face the proposition <coughs> that this big book step work is everything or else it's nothing. So they're kind of asking us now, are you all in? Are you all in? Joe and Charlie gives this great... <coughs> this great analogy of if your aunt makes the best strawberry shortcake and you want to make it, but then you 
choose to, you know, you, you want it sweeter, so you're gonna put more sugar in it, or, you know, let's say that it says fresh strawberries, but it's cheaper to buy those frozen strawberries, so you put that in it. Do you get a strawberry shortcake? Yes, but it's not gonna be your aunt's. You know, one of the examples I've been using recently <coughs> is even if you do exactly the measurements that you want, that's de descriptive there, and you put it in the oven, and in 45 minutes you take it out, if you don't preheat the oven, nothing's going to happen. Preheating the oven is putting the food down. So I need to have the food down so I can follow the exact directions in this book, but if I'm still eating, I'm not going to get the effect. So the question is, am I all in? Am I going to try to do Kim's version? We had a guy in my intergroup named Ozzy, and he said, he always talked about how he always worked OA, but unfortunately it was Ozzy Anonymous that he worked. <laughs> um, so am I going to do Kim's version of the steps? Personally, once again, my program of recovery was people's opinions and sayings. I could, I could give you a saying for everything. You know, it works if you work it. Never knew what it was. Don't leave till the miracle happens. The miracle's happened, you're in an OA meeting, what are you going to do about it? So am I all in at this point? And as a recovered person, I do the same thing. Once again with my neighbor. I decided that was something I had to, I had to figure out myself. Right? Am I all in? What are the areas in my life that I think that this 12-step program isn't going to do? The big ones are often romance and finance. But for me personally, it's those little ones. God can't be bothered. This 12-step work, I need to work on that because I, oh, I might get laid off of work. I'm going to do that. But, you know, my dog getting older and me fearful that he's, he's going to die, yeah, I, I, I'll just deal with that on, on the side. So the question is, are you all in? So let's go to page 55. <coughs> that second paragraph. So they're going to tell us now where we can find God. Actually, we're fooling ourselves, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by life, by pomp, and by worship of other things. So here I am, once again, a little Catholic schoolgirl, and I thought the only way I could talk to God was on Sunday mornings at 11.15 a.m. in Morristown, New Jersey, and at first I had to talk to a priest or a nun first. And here I'm being told that God is deep down inside me. So if he's deep down inside me, why can't I access him? Because I've put all this crap between me and God. What did we learn back yesterday on page 25? The solution is, is the steps 4 through 9 and then implemented in 10 and 11. That's what clears the sludge out of our life so that we can feel God. It's obscured by calamity. Heard this on a, on a CD too. <coughs> if you want to know what calamity sounds like, Think if a microchip is planted in your brain and your thoughts are projected to the world on a megaphone all day long. <laughs> that is what calamity sounds like. I have to tell you, I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I return a lot of phone calls on my drive home, so I'm talking to some girl on my drive home and feel connected and excited because I'm talking to her about step one and she goes, I can, I can tell she's getting upset, which don't sound mean, but that's a good thing. Like, oh, she's getting it, she's getting it. And I walk in the house and I am unpacking my lunch and I open up my lunch bag and I have this special salad bag that has a, you know, a salad container and has a, um, a freezer pack ledge that separates out all the stuff. And I opened it up and I had, I had left it at work. And my immediate thought was, you stupid fuck. I'm connected with God talking to this girl, but me forgetting that, my whole body just went, you stupid piece of crap. Like, that's, that's what my mind is up against. So that's the calamity that's in my head. Even when I'm trying to work this program, I default back to that insanity, that calamity. My pomp is my ego. I talked about that again last night. I was the intergroup chair. What are you going to tell me about OA? <laughs> you know, I'm a believer. I, I remember this one girl I talked to, she was in California, and... Um, she had gone through the steps, had a spiritual awakening, and her sponsor called me to talk to her because she was insisting that she only could sponsor people in her specific church. Not just, you know, she was Christian, but not just Christianity, but had to be her specific sect of Christianity. And she called me about it, and I said, you know, I'm just telling you that you're risking your sobriety because your job is to carry the message of the 12th step, not to carry your religion. And, you know, odds are not a lot of, you know, 
you're not going to have enough people in your specific church that are even compulsive overeaters to carry it to. Your job is to carry the message of the 12 steps. And she was insistent, no, I could only carry it in my religion. And she relapsed. So that's the arrogance we have. And then by worship of other things. You know, I worshiped being a size six. I worshiped having, going to a correct school. Maybe it's the right zip code. I was reading a, um, an autobiography the other day and, <coughs> and I had to laugh because the girls look older than I am. But she was talking about living in inner city Chicago and uh, she got accepted into like a better school. I guess yeah, it must have been the 70s and the 80s. And she was, she was so terrified because her jeans didn't have a swan on the back. And she was going to be like, you know, laughed at because she didn't have the Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. I remember that feeling. I'm, you know, wearing a shirt that didn't have a little polo kit on it or whatever it was that was popular at the time. I worshiped that. Worshiped having, meeting that right guy because I'm not, I don't have worth of myself, but if this guy likes me, then that's going to prove to the world that I'm, I have worth. <coughs> so I hope this isn't, con you know, once again, this is just my experience. I don't want to offend anybody, but I, being a Catholic again, <coughs> um, the, one of the most famous pictures is Jesus at the Last Supper. So it's Jesus and his 12 disciples. And I remember going to college, and um, I, was just, I was just a curious kid. I had never, I only knew like white Catholics growing up. That's all I knew. So when I went to college and I met Jewish people and black people and, and Muslim people and gay people, I, I was just like, I was not in a mean way, but I was just so curious I would ask them questions. And I remember talking to this Jewish girl, and she said to me, she goes, you know the Last Supper is Passover, right? And I'm like, what? She's like, like, you know Jesus was Jewish, right? And I'm like, what? Like, like, like I just was so naive. Like, really? Oh, that's right. He's Jewish. So there's a, there was a picture that I saw many years ago, and it was the Last Supper with Jesus. But instead of the 12 disciples, there was Abraham and Muhammad and Martin Luther King, and Mother Teresa, and Gandhi, and all these spiritual teachers. And I picture Bob and Bill up there. And my feeling is all these humans found the God deep down inside them, and then other humans built up dogmas around them. Doesn't mean any one of them is wrong or any one of them is right. But the goal is to find the God deep down within inside me versus worshiping the dogma that was built up around that person. Does that make sense? So what that has done for me is I consider myself a spiritual mutt. You know, I will take anything that feel that resonates right with me from any religion. I love, I love, especially I love Eastern, Eastern religions. But <coughs> that's what this is talking about. That we need to find that deep down within us. And some people, it gets them more engaged with their current religion. Some people, they might find another religion. I've seen believers become atheists, and I've seen atheists become believers, and I've seen agnostics go back and forth. It doesn't matter. In a 12-step program, this is a spiritual path that we're on. Now, just to put a little two cents in there, too, is that what I kind of was talking about is I'm carrying the message of the 12 steps. So even if I'm comfortable in my own religion and my practices, it's important for me to know this material because I'm going to have to talk to the agnostic and the atheist. And I'm going to have to talk to people who believe differently than me. So even if my comfort level is good with this stuff, to know the material so I can be more effective in helping other people. Does that make sense? Oh, I'm just, I don't even remember the exact picture, but I was just other spiritual teachers. So Muhammad would be for Islam, Abraham would be for Judaism, Gandhi would be for Buddhism, um, but Martin Luther King, because to me, like the social, you know, the civil rights movement, Mother Teresa, I just like it because there's a chick in the Catholic Church they actually pay attention to, you know. Um, so, so like, it's, it's whatever spiritual teachers are there. I mean, yeah, I mean... We'll talk about this in step 11, but in step 11, that's where we get to play. I'm always asking people, who do you, I'm a big auditory person. What podcasts are you listening to? Who are the spiritual gurus that you're, that you're reading? And book, in fact, a friend of mine sent me um, <coughs> an email of this great spiritual teacher um, this week. I said, this is perfect because I'm, you know, I'm out of the area, so I'm using that today and tomorrow for my step 11 reading in the morning because um, it just really resonated with me what she sent me. But it's not something I read on a regular basis, but she thought of me when she, when she got her daily meditation. So I just want to be all-inclusive with all the representations of religions. 
Okay, so we are at 10.50. Does anyone have another question before? Actually, I'm gonna turn off the mic and then we'll have questions for one or two questions and then we can um, take a break till 11. Okay, all right, so we are back and we're gonna start on step three. And my two prejudices that I have on step three <coughs> is I turn my life and my will over in step three. And I, I, I take my will back because I'm not getting what I want. Okay, so we're going to go into, um, actually I'll say one thing, on, I heard someone say that page 58 and 59 are the most read and least listened to pages of the big book, <coughs> so we're not actually going to go over that, but that first sentence, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, and a speaker was saying that he had a newcomer read that, and the, he, he read it with what his truth is, and the way the, the newcomer read it was, rarely have we seen a person thoroughly follow our path. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my experience too. Okay, so we're going to go to page 60. <coughs> So that second paragraph after step 12. Meant, um, our description of the alcoholic, which is doctor's opinion through, more, through um, more about alcoholism, the chapter to the agnostic, step two, and our personal adventures before and after, which are the stories, make clear three pertinent ideas. Because once again, step one and two are conclusions, right? That we were alcoholic, drunk or sober, and could not manage our lives, drunk or sober, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, that's why I need a power, and see God could and would if he were sought. That's a big one for me. So basically step three is a decision to seek that power. That's what I'm doing. God could and would if he were sought. If, I, if, if I'm not asking God in, if I'm not trying to clear those blockages, you know, my, my personal belief is God's trying to talk to me all day long, it's just that I'm not paying attention. And the way I get to pay attention is by doing the steps. Being convinced, we are at step three, so I'm convinced of step one and two, those conclusions, which is we decided, to, which is we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understand Him. Just what do we mean by that, and just what do we have to do? So 60 to 63, to me, is telling me what is life like when I'm in charge. My personal truth is it's a, it's a shit show. And that recognition of what life is like when I'm in charge is going to force me to make a decision to learn a different way of life. So let's look at these pages. Is what is life like when we're in charge? Self-will. So it says the first requirement is we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives were good. The way I think about it is, as a kid, when I would go to the local fair and you had those bumper cars, every time you turn around you're knocking into somebody. That's what life felt like. I'm constantly in collision with these people. Why won't they just pay attention to me? You know, I'm the oldest of three kids. Why don't my brothers just do what I tell them to do? My motives are good. I'm a big sister. I'm just trying to help out. And it says most people live by self-propulsion. Not most alcoholics. Most people live by self-propulsion. I'm probably going to talk about this again, but it's making me think of it. My office is, um, there's a lot of, been a lot of layoffs and a lot of changes and <coughs> um, all the girls in my office are frightened and everyone's living by self-propulsion, trying to like compete. They can do that, I can't. <coughs> I got to do 10 and 11 work on. I can't live in that anxiety without eating. So most of the world does that. Most people who are very successful in life live by self-propulsion. I can't do that. I have to know who I am as a compulsive overeater. And then it talks about this play, an actor trying to, <coughs> trying to run the whole show. Now the top is 60, 61. I'm going to read it how it sounds in my head. If only my arrangements would stay put. If only people would do as I wish, the show would be great. Everybody, including myself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. Because <laughs> that's what I think. And where in my world am I trying to do that? If only my neighbor would just behave and not be give me a hard time about my dogs. If only the people in OA would all just do the big book and stop doing other shit. It, everything would be okay. <laughs> if 
only everyone politically would think like I do. Everything would be okay. <laughs> That's what we think. And, and it, it's like that in our heads, in trying to make these arrangements, our, ma our actors seem sometimes quite virtuous. You know, we um, patient, considerate, kindness. On the other hand, it may mean egotistical. <laughs> I like how this woman says it. It doesn't matter if we're being um, Debbie Dormat or Betty Bulldozer. <laughs> you know, they're both sides of the same coin. You know, I, I, I think when in high school, stupid things like, <coughs> I don't even remember the, the movie When Harry Met Sally. And I, I don't know the exact line, but I just remember laughing because um, Harry said that Megan would, um, when Sally was one of the most difficult people because she's one of those high maintenance people that thinks that she's low maintenance. <laughs> and that's me. So I like to think I'm easygoing and I'm not. And uh, so in high school, we'd be like, oh, let's go to the movies. Oh, okay, whatever you guys want to do. And then they would say, well, let's go see this movie. Oh, I heard Siskel and Ebert gave that two thumbs down. No, what about this? Oh, that's a really inconvenient time. Until finally the only option is, well, why don't we go see Footloose? Okay, I want to see Footloose. You know, I would do that over and over again, but I would do it in such a way that I think I was being so sweet and wonderful, as opposed to the jerk to come, no, we're only going to see Footloose. So I give myself this excuse. So once again, this next paragraph, just like the bedevilments, I read it in first person, because I need to personalize it. So, so what usually happens? <coughs> the show doesn't come off very well. I begin to think that life doesn't treat me right. I decide to exert myself more become on the next occasion more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still the, suit, the play doesn't suit me. Admitting I may be somewhat at fault, I am sure that other people are more to blame. Which my personal equation is, if I do nine things wrong and you do ten things wrong, I'm totally innocent and you're totally guilty. I become more angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is my basic trouble? Am I not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind. <coughs> so I think, I mean, I am a woman, obviously, but I think this, this is with women. We're, we're, we're trained to be caretakers and think of other people and blah, blah, blah. So we, I'm not like this. I'm always thinking of other people. But I have to tell you that, um, what's your name? Pat? Yeah, Pat. Before program, I would say, Pat, can I be nice to you? I mean, can I, can I help you out? And really what I'm saying is, can I manipulate you so I can get you to do what I want so I can feel comfortable? <laughs> or can I be nice to you because I want you to tell all these people how wonderful I am? Or can I be nice to you so at least you won't tell everyone in here what an asshole I really am? <laughs> and that's what I realized. It was always a self-seeker. Even when trying to be kind, it was all, I never said to anyone, how can I help you without ulterior motives? Am I not the victim of the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only I manage well? That's a big one for me. I, I love the victim martyr role. That's one of my favorites, right? <coughs> and what I'll do is I'll change that word world to whatever I'm trying to manipulate today. You know, am I the victim of the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction out of my neighbor if only I manage well, out of my mother, out of my job, out of my dogs if only I manage well? Just to skip ahead a little bit, <coughs> I like to use this paragraph in my step 11. Because to me, step 3 is an example of being self-driven, and step 11 is when I'm God-driven or power-driven. So if I use 60 to 63, it kind of tells me where my spiritual life is at. So when I'm starting to be run by self-will, this stuff starts to make a heck of a lot more sense. In fact, I was teasing some, <coughs> joking with someone about they were wishing me luck with this weekend and if I was nervous and I said well God has a really weird sense of humor because I get so OCD about packing and I get so freaked out about traveling that I don't even think about speaking I'm too like insane and they, they were surprised I'm like listen I'm a compulsive overeater I, I can obsess about anything self I'm gonna make sure that planes on time I, I uh, got picked up by a by a service and the girl who the the driver <coughs> 
The driver seemed to not know where he was going, which made me nervous, and I have no sense of direction. I'm pulling out my little app on my phone going, yeah, we need to take this exit. I'm going, oh my God, we're never gonna make it to the airport. And then the girl we pick up, she just never shut up. And I'm like, oh my God, this woman's driving me crazy. Like I, I that, you know, I'm doing 10 steps in my head just to get to the freaking airport. You know, and then I see how long the TSA line is. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And I tend to throw up on people in planes. That's why I don't like to travel. I, I get very nauseous. My stomach is really bad. I don't, I, I don't eat beforehand. I have, I, I have these like hospital type barf bags that I bring in just in case, sneak that into the thing. It's, it's a big drama. So I'm like, okay, God, tell me what, hug it. You know, so it's, it's like this idea, I'm a victim of the delusion, I can wrest satisfaction out of traveling if only I manage it well. Stuff happens, you know? And it's, it's, it's just, oh, I just love that. Is it not evident to the <coughs> all the rest of the players that these are the things they want? Don't my brothers get it that I'm, you know, I'm just trying to help them out? One of the things that annoyed me so much was not only did my brothers survive without my interference, they thrived without it. <laughs> and do not my actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show. <coughs> I really saw this in my fourth step. You know, is it really that people are jerks or are they just reacting to what a jerk I am? You know, and here's the one that hurts my heart. Am I not even in my best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony? So even when everything is, you know, I got 12 balls in the air and everything's going good, the best I can hope for is confusion. You know, we often hear, how do I know if I'm in God's will or, or Kim's will? <coughs> to me, this is a great step 11 meditation. If I'm in confusion, it's probably because I'm in, I'm in Kim's will, trying to make stuff happen. If I'm in harmony, that's usually because I'm in God's will and I'm just allowing life to happen. This is a, 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 one of my spiritual, <coughs> my favorite podcast guys from AA. He talks about living a life of invitation. And I love that because I have a to-do list out the wazoo. And uh, if that doesn't get done, I have no worth. So instead I say, okay, God, what needs to be done today? Life of invitation. I was writing about that this morning. I, I, I was up for like, you know, like over 24 hours yesterday. I, I was planning to sleep on the plane, I couldn't sleep. I was planning to take a nap when I got here, I couldn't sleep. And just say, okay, God, just keep it going, keep it moving. You know, just, I'm going to try to be connected as I can. That's instead of trying to like get angry that I couldn't fall asleep. You know, so this life of invitation. <coughs> so let's turn to page 62. First full paragraph, selfish and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Selfish and self-centeredness, once again, those of us who think that we're such good people have a hard time with that sometimes, always thinking of others. And I heard a speaker say it, he goes, if you have a hard time with selfish and self-centered, what about the word self-consumed? Yikes. Because out of a 24-hour day, I'm thinking about me 23 hours. Now, I might be thinking I'm a piece of crap, but I'm still thinking about me. I remember when I was in high school, someone said, because I was really shy, oh, shy people are the most self-centered people in the world. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, you walk into a room of 300 people, and you think everyone's looking at you. And I'm like, I do. I really do. You know, I, this is kind of unrelated, but when I, um, I was in OA, but... Uh, I was in my best friend's wedding, not my best friend, this is a girlfriend of mine, her, her wedding, and I had lost all the weight and everything, and we go to the rehearsal dinner, and they changed it around, and I was gonna be the first one down the aisle in the, in the bridal party. And I was flipping out, because I cannot, you're gonna, I hate being the center of attention, yet I stand up in front of all you people, but, but I hate, I cannot stand being the center of attention. And um, so I called my sponsor, and I'm telling her, can you call out for a wedding? Like, can you just not go and da 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 and I'm panicking and everything. And she just stayed quiet, and after I stopped talking, she said, Kim, they're coming to see the bride. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And this was just a girlfriend of mine. It wasn't even like a family member. She was there looking around you to see the bride. And I'm like, oh. So whenever I get really self-conscious and self -think, I think, they're coming to see the bride. They're coming to see the bride. They're coming to see the bride. Like, uh, it makes me not take myself so seriously. So self-consumed, always thinking about me. Whether and it said it doesn't matter whether I'm thinking I'm hot, I'm you know, best things in the sliced bread, or I'm thinking I'm lower than, than anything. I'm still thinking about me. 
and it says driven by a hundred forms of fear. That's what I'm driven by. I'm driven by these, these anxieties and these fears and how can I protect myself? I use my, my, my uh, dog, uh, the Jack Russell dog, who's driven to get these squirrels. My favorite um, dog breed by far is a Border Collie. And they are, they're, they're beautiful animals and they're always on TV. I don't know if you watch America, America's Got Talent. There's a, uh, uh, I, forget the, the, I forget the human's name, but Falco's the dog. Um, <laughs> But it's a beautiful border collie, but I really got, I don't like him being on TV like that because I can see a bunch of people now adopting a border collie because they want to have Falco. And that dog, I, I, I mean, I know border, that dog is nuts. Falco needs to have that type of attention because border collies were bred to help sheep herders where in, in the Scottish islands, they would send their dog out and the dog would watch the sheep all day and bring the sheep back eight hours. They're, they're made to be independent, they're made to be thinking and, and solving problems and when somebody buys them and puts them in a backyard of a um, you know a suburban neighborhood with a lot of chaos they go nuts they go crazy and they're destructive and they wind up being caged and they wind up being put in in rescues because what they're driven for is not what we want we want we want the dog that's going to perform like Falco and do all these cute little things. And I can see that in, they have to eat this, you know, I'm going way too off on a dog. But it, but it just reminds me, like, I'm, he, dogs are gonna be punished because they're cute, because they wanna have the Disney dog, and they don't recognize that they're driven by different things. So I have to recognize that my brain is wired differently as an addict. I can't expect me, myself to behave like normal people. I am wired differently, which is why I have to constantly use this stuff because my default position is, well, what about me? How's this gonna affect me? <laughs> and if I'm not treating that, I'm gonna default back to that because I am driven that way. And it says that is the root of the problem. Where are roots? They're underneath the ground. So we have to dig them up. How do we dig them up? By working the steps. Now here's the best news you're gonna hear today. That second paragraph. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. Because see, if my trouble really is my neighbor, or my mother, or my job, what am I gonna do about that? I can't change them. But if through this step process, I can react differently to what's going on in my life, then I can have a different experience. So my, rea you know, <coughs> um, I'm trying to think what that saying is. Um, yeah, it's Buddha that says, attachment is the root of all suffering. So it's my attachment to these things that is causing me the pain. And if I can learn to be detached through the step process, then I don't have to suffer. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So it talks about that we, um, <coughs> we must be rid of the selfishness or it kills us. God makes that possible. There often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his age. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not leave up, live up to them. We needed God's help. <coughs> I had, you know, I often hear people say, well, you know, if you had my childhood, you'd be a compulsive overeater too. I live with Ozzy and Harriet. I mean, my parents, I had a beautiful childhood, and I was always loved, had access to, you know, middle-class neighbor, you know, thing. It wasn't a matter of if I could go to college, it was which college did I want to go to. Um, I never felt like I wasn't loved, yet I'm a compulsive overeater. So I can have all these moral, philosophical convictions galore and have these great mentors. The problem is I don't have the power to do anything about it. I heard an AA speaker say once that, um, that in religion they tell you, here are the principles, do them. In OA, or in AA, we say, here are the principles, you don't have the power to do them. And that's what that's saying, is I can know that being honest is a good thing. I don't have the power to do that on my own. So this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. That is my daily challenge, especially in sponsoring, making people do what I want. <coughs> it didn't work. Once again, my step one experience told me that it didn't work. It doesn't work when I play God. My brothers don't behave any better when I'm telling them what to do. So here comes the actual decision. This is the last paragraph on page 62. Next we decided in the hereafter of this drama of life, God is going to be our director. He is the principal, we are his agents, he is the father, we are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant spirit, triumphant arch which passed us to freedom. 
<coughs> so a lot of people, because of their childhoods, have a hard time with that father-child. So think of a relationship that works for you. For me personally, it's teacher and student. God is the teacher, I am the student, because I love school. So that's a relationship. So whatever that relationship is. My mom's been in OA since the 70s, and I remember she used to have a um, bumper sticker on the car that said, God is my co-pilot. And I realize now that's pretty sick because if God's my co-pilot, that means I can still get my hand on the wheel. <laughs> you know, so I like to think of it as God is my Uber driver. Like I have to, I have to be, I have to be in the back seat, and He's going to take me where I need to go. Um, so, and if anyone's still, I'm just want to step back from it. If anyone's still having a problem with this word God, I use the word power pretty consistently. I try to do that, but. When we get into these later chapters, it's going to say the word God, so I'm going to consistently use that. So I often use this example. When I first came into OA, I had a really hard time with the big book because they kept saying alcohol, but I finally got beaten up enough so I said, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm not going to worry about the word alcohol. I know it's the food. And then I got to the point, too, like, okay, I know it's not all food. When someone's saying abstinence, someone's saying food, I know it's my allergic foods, and their allergic foods going to be different. I'm not going to get caught up in that. It's the same thing with the word God. It's the word, the generic word in here that's used. But if you don't like that word, if you have a different concept, just disregard it and know that it's about the power, that power greater than yourself. There's a, a, another A speaker I love. He said he calls it a God beyond his understanding because if he understands God, he's not big enough. So I like to think of that power. So I just want to say that. So if anyone's having a hard time with that, just it's whatever that means to you. So the top of page 63... <coughs> When I was first taught that, it was, I was called the third step promises, and I have it crossed out of my book, because what I believe now is these are not the promises of the third step, because I never got them in step three. I would do that OA waltz, one, two, three, one, two, three, relapse. What I personally believe now is these are the promises of the 12 steps. So Bill at this point is putting a carrot in front of us and dying and saying, hey, if you do this work, look what can happen. Look what is possible if you do this step work. So it says, if we sincerely took such a position, which is God is the father, we are the child, God is the agent, he is the principal. All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. And notice it's capitalized, so it's indicating a power greater than ourself. <coughs> that's, really power, that's really good for me when, with all the stuff going on at work, because when I get all freaked out about stuff that's happening out at work, I have to remind myself I have, an, I have an ultimate employer, not just the person I who pays my paycheck. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed, not what we wanted, if, and here's the condition, if we keep close to him, which to me is, is 10 and 11, and performed his work well, which is step 12. And remember, step 12 has three parts, right? We've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. We carry this message and we practice these principles in all of our affairs. So God will provide what we need as long as we live in 10, 11, and 12 is how I read that. Established in such a footing, we become less and less interested in our little plans and designs. I talked earlier about you know that living a life of invitation. One of the things I used to do is in the shower, I would have my little plans and design time. So it would be my to-do list of all the stuff that's supposed to happen in order for me to be okay. And then I would get out and say, okay guys, I'm gonna live a life of invitation. More and more we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we feel new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began. So it's, this is just the beginning. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. And it's not talking about reborn physically. Is that I'm going to experience a new life if I do this work. This is, you know, step one is the death of the food. Step three is the death of the self. So my old life has to die, and then I will become reborn. Do you have a question? Uh, yeah, you keep talking about living a life of invitation. So you mean God's invitation? Whose invitation are we talking about? Well, the, whatever, whatever choreography of God or life, meaning that if something, is in, if something happens before me, that's what my attention comes to, as opposed to my to-do list. In the back of my head, if I have to go here, and I have to go there, and I have to go there, it's like, okay, whatever is before me will get done today. And what I find is I'm not awake. That's why I love the word awakening. I'm asleep to what's going on around me, and if I'm awake, I see those opportunities that are in front of me. Oh, uh, okay. Thank you. That makes sense? I guess so. Just that word invitation threw me off, so. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. 
Okay, so now we're going to do the third step prayer. <coughs> so I'm going to explain it to us, explain it to me, and then I'm going to have you do a little exercise, and then we're going to do it together. Okay? So we are now at step three. So step three, I used to think step three was the prayer. Step three is just the affirmation of everything we just talked about. So step three is really acknowledging, once again, of what life is like when we're living by self. And then we, we just, you know, my experience, it's not good. So then I'm going to say a prayer that's going to help me make a decision to learn a new way of life. So we are now at step three. Many of us said to our makers, as we understand him, God, I offer myself today. I always bargained. You do this, and I'll do that. You do this, and I'll do that. So offer is no strings attached. Take me as I am. To build with me and do with me as thou wilt. And I always use this example. <coughs> My dad's a Marine. He's in early 80s. Went into the Marine Corps when he was in his 20s. And it's like he talks about boot camp as if it happened yesterday. And it's a, I can't remember if it's 11 or 13 weeks. Um, but he talks about the fact that when you go into boot camp, they don't teach you how to be a Marine at first. What they do is they strip the civilian out of you. And when you have no identity, they build you up into the few and the proud. So when I see pictures of my dad before he went into boot camp, real tall, really skinny guy, and he's got the Elvis DA. And during that 11 or 13 week period, he put on 35 pounds of pure muscle. And he came out with that Marine buzz cut with that determined look that every Marine has. You would not have known it was the same person. That's what's possible. Think about everything we've been taught up to page 63 in this book. They have basically told us we are nothing. This allergy of the body, this mental twist, our own thinking, we have been stripped of our identity of who we've been. And now that we're open to it, we're going to be built up into the person that we've always been meant to be. I almost think of the 12 steps as a return to being Kim, who I was always intended to be, but that I got in my own way and built up this false, false persona. So I'm asking God to build me up into what he would have me be. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Once again, I always, you know, this is where I feel like I used to like take big book concepts and put them into Kim's way. I always said, free me from the bondage of food. That's abstinence. If that's enough, I don't need the steps. The problem is me. Free me of the bondage of me. That constant chatter in my head that tortures me every single day. that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. So not take away my difficulties so my life can be easier, but take away my difficulties so I can bear witness. I can be living proof that you do not need to suffer as a compulsive overeater. So once again, this is my opinion, but I think sometimes we have devolved into like junior therapy sessions in OA and other 12-step programs as well. You know, the, the, the topic of the day will be divorce versus the steps. And we're not here to solve anyone's divorce. I'm not here to solve your trauma. But let's say that you're going through a divorce. You can testify to the fact I went through a divorce and I was still able to work the steps and stay abstinent. You know, I went through a cancer treatment and I was able to stay abstinent and work these steps. I lost a child. I can't even imagine something like that. I lost a child. And I was able to, um, you know, work these steps and have a spiritual awakening. So when we bear witness is really in step 12, because we've had a spiritual awakening. But we're not here to fix people's traumas. That's not the job of a 12-step program. We're here to witness that regardless of what's going on in your life, you can have a spiritual awakening. I get excited, personally, when I take a fifth step with someone who's had a really bad childhood, because I know they're going to be able to bear witness in a way I can't, because I didn't have that experience. Um, now this is not part of the prayer, but I love the last sentence. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to Him. So that's the question. Am I willing to abandon myself utterly to these 12 steps, to the big book? <coughs> 